it's risky. He targets hospitals, he targets health workers, and now he is preventing health access. It's a torture mechanism outside of jail. He, he tortured you in jail, outside of the jail as a parent, he tortured you with your kid. On this episode of TCF World, we invite Marcel Shafwaro and James Sadri to talk about the stories of Syrians still suffering in the country's civil war and the challenges of maintaining interest in the West. This is episode eight of TCF World Podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis in Beirut. Hi, this is Thanasi Kambanis. I'm here in Beirut with Marcel Shawaro. Hi, Marcel. Hi. Uh, Marcel is an activist from Aleppo who is now uh, based between Beirut and Istanbul. Uh, uh, today we're going to talk about a, a campaign that she's in the middle of to uh, bring attention to a sieged area in Syria that has attracted a lot less attention in the West than her hometown, Aleppo, did a year ago uh, when it uh, finally fell to the Syrian government's forces, uh, but which is maybe just as important in, in the trajectory of Syria's uprising. Um, to get us started, myself, tell us what, what is Eastern Ghouta and what is happening there right now? Eastern Ghouta is an area like where 400,000 people live still in there. And they are besieged completely since February. When I say completely, it means nothing is entering in or out. And when I say nothing, means no medicine, no kids' toys, no stationery, no food. Anything basics you can look around now and you can buy, it's not entering Muta. So this is like a place where nearly half a million people live? Yes. City? It's kind of, we have basic major cities, Duma, and, and around it is many villages. So it's a large area, close to Damascus, 10 kilometers from Damascus, where UN Damascus is still functioning. And Many organizations is considering going back now, so it is that close. It was besieged early 2013 and attacked by chemical weapons on August 2013. In the incidents, it is well known. Yeah, this is the uh, Eastern Ghouta is the famous site of the awful chemical weapons attack in 2013 that almost but didn't uh, provoke a U.S. Uh, response. Yeah, when Obama Obama red line is not that red, and when they said, okay, give us a chemical weapon and we're going to forgive you for it, and that's happened. So four and a half years ago, we all stopped paying, or not all of us, but many people stopped paying attention to this place, and you're saying since then it's been under siege by the government of Syria. Yeah, they create, locals created some uh, solution, a tunnel to Berzik where war economy played a huge role in what enters and what didn't enter. In February, we lost that tunnel because Perse is back to the regime control, so there is no tunnels anymore. And it's when was that? February. February. And it's totally besieged. Why no one knows about it? For many reasons. And I, I'm not a fan of blaming the ignorance. First, because the situation in Syria uh, lasted for a long while. 
and because many generations that are alive now doesn't remember war, so it's not realistic for them in 2017 to try to imagine how siege looks like, how if you want to have a birthday party, for example, I wanted to do a birthday party to a friend in there, how this is a planning or four or five days to have a cake, a really, really small and expensive cake. It took me four days to see who knows one who have eggs, who know one who have, so just to collect the ingredients for a simple cake, it was a whole week mission. So from Beirut, you coordinated the assembly of the in, ingredients for a cake inside Eastern Ghouta? Yeah, it was in Istanbul actually, and I decided that I don't want to do the basic gifts that cost less, maybe. I wanted to do something that we do for a friend in outside of siege. I wanted to do... In real, in normal life? Yeah, in normal life, because I think that he needed a normal approach. So this is the siege. The, before working on the campaign, my knowledge on the siege was also general. Yeah, Eastern Ghouta is besieged. There is half million. But what that, that means, I didn't get it in the details. Working in the campaign and working with like activists from Al Ghouta, I started to realize and daily the question pump up in my mind. What do you do about shampoo? What do you do about cleaning materials? Because they are creating everything. And most of the time, many of these products are not good, are not healthy. So they are making their own shampoo? Yeah, they are making their own shampoo, they are making their own cleaning material. Last month, someone created another equation for salt, and it was poisoned. It didn't so work they out. So they were finding a chemical substitute for salt? Yeah, and it was poisoned and many went into hospital because of it. So this is when what besieged mean in a daily life. I talked two days ago with a woman who is expecting a child in Volta. And I asked, I asked her, what are you gonna do for the new clothes? You're having a new kid that is her first child and she would need new clothes for him. So she would go to the neighborhood to see who had old clothes, either to buy it from them or they will give it for her for free. And then later on, when her kid is one year old, she needs to give it back to someone else. So this new clothes for a new child will be used 10 times, 15 times among the neighborhood. So these details what was missing in the picture. Mainly because many narrative about Syria forgot that there is civilians. People identify Syria as armed groups are fighting together, and they forget that we do exist. We as human, as women, as kids, we do exist in that plan, and we have babies, we fall in love, we fight, we have birthdays. This is missing, and the besieged make even communication is harder because sometimes they have to work for four hours to find baby milk. I had an appointment with a really dear friend who was with me in the, co the college in Aleppo 
and he came late and said I needed to go at work before it's night to find a baby milk and I had to work for four hours to find a baby milk for my daughter. So, of course, this has paralyzed your life. And this is why he besieged. Many people say why he besieged an area. Yeah, to kill people, to punish people, but also... You're talking about why Bashar al-Assad Yeah, why Bashar al-Assad besieging. Because this is a question always. Those who didn't believe the horror of war and they think, why the hell he's doing it? He's doing it to paralyze people like us. I was used to be an unviolent activist, really outspoken against all the military actions and all dictatorship and terrorism. Ended up having to spend half of his day on water, electricity, food. So he is paralyzing us on the daily details of a normal being. So a, a year ago when, when Aleppo finally fell, uh, there was now, although there was not really much of an international response, there was a, a huge amount of attention paid. I think many of, of the people listening to our conversation will be surprised to learn that there's another uh, area under siege that has maybe more people in it today than Aleppo did uh, at the end of its siege. So this, is, this, this turns out to be a war that's not over, uh, which I think will be news uh, uh, to, to, to many people. People talking about ceasefire and like agreement and escalation zones and like one time a friend of mine opened a Skype and he want, like he was showing me the the how they are being bombed and tell me if this is escalation zone I don't think I'm getting the term right <laughs> if now it is quiet what bombardment looks like and. That's the bullshit of Geneva, Satana, that people lost attention and they they feel that the one the war is over and you will read it, the war is over. Bashar Assad won last year. We got the planet got crazy. So with Trump and Brexit there's not much bandwidth left to think about. Yeah, and uh, Europe and Europe people. and who's gonna win the election in Europe and all these questions around even the coup in Turkey and failing coup. And that's why people may not know about Ulta. And because media thinks they don't care. So they don't cover enough. They will cover sexy story they think that people want to hear about ISIS, about the sex life of ISIS. And I don't think that this is what the people really want, but this is what the media want us to think that this is it. And right now, part of the purpose of what I'm doing is, I think we can just have an eye on that area. So they, uh, he can't bomb them in chemical weapons again. He, w he will consider another choice than the Russian bombardments and then evacuating half million to Egypt. We have this joke, if he is gonna evacuate them, he will need a year just to transform them in the, the, the green buses. Not enough buses to take 400,000 people. To, uh, to Italy. And all this like plan of the green buses and us as those who believe in human rights, accepting it as a reality, 
like whenever he doesn't like a whole community, he has the ability to evacuate them to totally different areas and they can't go back. This whole approach is part of the problem. And this is also happening because there is no serious solution to Syria. Everyone is stuck with it's too complicated, what we're gonna do with terrorism, and simple, simple questions. And there's no enough pressure into politicians to do anything about it, even the war in terrorism. I'm sorry, your politicians are interested in their 40 years. So they, four year, they're four years in office, right? It's yeah, not, so they don't care. The long term so stability of care. a country like Syria. Not or, or, I don't, only Syria. So even their plans on war on terror, they will achieve a victory now while they are in office. But this victory, if it's gonna be collapsed 10 years from now, it's someone into, else's problem. Yeah, and they don't care. So, so tell, tell us a little bit uh, uh, about the, the, the specific kinds of cases that you're trying to bring attention to. Because I think, you know, when, when, when we hear at this stage about the war in Syria or even a siege of a place like Ghouta, you know, some, some people, even informed people, will, will immediately focus on the armed groups or on the you know, strategic difficulty of envisioning a long-term stable solution, and you're focusing on something much more specific and tangible than that, which is families and individuals who are sick and who need either to get the medical treatment or to get medicine to themselves. We, uh, a problem for which I think you, you would say there is a solution. Uh, there's 572 medical cases that need safe access to health. When we say safe access to health, it means either their medicine enter Ghouta, which is easy because the UN, Damascus, are entering, because Red Crescent are entering Ghouta. So please, while you are going in there, bring some medicine with you. And the other thing is cases that need treatment doesn't exist in Ghouta, either surgery, from this 572, we decided that a group of activists, we're gonna kind of adopt a case. Each one will adopt a family and be part of it, communicate with it on a daily basis uh, regarding their kid that is uh, sick. The, the idea started with the question, what if it is my kid? What would I do if it was my kid? So especially around 30 women have this kind of questions. Should I have kids? Not. I'm too late. So it started with the personal question, what if it is my kid and it's stuck and the medicine is 10 kilometers and I'm stuck with him and I can't secure him. It's emotional enough to have a sick kid to begin with. And being besieged also, it's even harder. So I started to communicate with Muayyad's family. Muayyad has a brain cancer. He used to have a chemo, then the besiegement became complete, and his therapy stopped. So the brain cancer reoccurred. How old boy? Nine years old. Yeah, and Muayyad's family have another kid, past his 20, and paralyzed. But because he's not alive, threatening, they didn't consider in the first Skype call to talk about him. To them, yeah, he is paralyzed, and he has treatment outside, but he's not dying. So they didn't even think that was a priority to mention. Yeah, the priority is Muayyad having brain cancer. It started to affect his hearing, and that's why he is now 
a bit refusing to go to school. Other kids are bullying him about his hearing problem. And uh, those who are not bullying him, dealing with him as the sick kid, pitying him. So he is refusing. At the beginning, on paper, I thought it would be easy. I'm going to communicate with the family, try to push around media. But on a daily basis, communication, you feel attached. You love Muayyad, you love the family. They ask you daily, is there anything in you? Do you think we're going to go out? And you don't want to lie and say, yes, we're going to go out. But also, you don't want to say, no, you are not going to go out. Because sometimes hope is dangerous and sometimes hope all that you get. So, why Muayyad is not is there, I don't know. This is the logic I, I can't get. What is... So the, so the solution in this case is quite the straightforward. UN, would be for the, the UN Damascus enter, take Muayyad and put him in the border so he can go anywhere. We will manage to find around the globe doctors who are willing to treat so all, so all the infrastructure is in place for this problem to be solved. The United Nations has a huge operation based in Damascus. It's a 10 or 20 minute drive uh, yeah, uh, to, to eastern Ghouta. So with, with UN pressure, they could drive in, pick him the up, and, and bring him to a hospital. When they entered last month, the uncle took Mu'ayyad, and he thought naively, maybe... When the UN entered eastern Ghouta. Yeah. He thought naively when they saw Mu'ayyad, they will take them, take him outside. And he also tell, told them, Take him alone. If it's a problem of us, his parents, take him alone to a hospital outside. But of course they didn't take anyone. They entered without medicine and went out without taking any of the medical. So why don't they? Uh, are they, they waiting? Are, they are becoming officials. Are they waiting for permission from the government? Yeah, Al-Assad they are waiting for permission for those who are PC. Like Bashar Assad is doing the decision. And he is giving the permission, uh, and he is uh, deciding what you can do and what not. Neutrality, impartiality, all these principles are crushed this year. And if we don't question the UN rule by now, it's going to happen again and again and again. Because the sad thing I meet with Yemenis activists, they talk about the exact same rule of the UN. I, when we talk about in front of Bosnians, they laugh. <laughs> you are still doing the same exact techniques that they used to do with us. That's sad. That's not funny. This is the this is the body that people thought that they created after World War II to prevent and, this mass atrocities. And this is the body that's going to be that, that's already being expected to somehow preside over a just reconstruction of Syria. Uh, if, and, if and when the, the war comes it's a, to an it's end. It's a corporate body that cares about money, salaries, project programs, uh, hierarchy. And I think later on we need, I don't know if later on, I think we need to question this because if its main core is to bring peace, it failed. If its main core is to make the suffering less, it failed for the interior. So, yeah, they are able to do it, but there is not enough pressure. And they, are be, they can be pressured because they are funded by all the European governments. They are not funded by Bashar Assad. So those who, as a feminist I know, who control money, control power. So, in Syria, those who control money, 
have no power at all. And that's strange. You are funding the UN. So ask the UN to do the medical evacuation. Have you had any even limited successes with these medical evacuations? They evacuated eight from 572. So there is 15, like in two years. So there is 15 died wait on the waiting list, and there is eight evacuated. So out of 572 people that were that were assessed as needing medical yeah. evacuation. Eight were evacuated, 15 have died while waiting, yeah. and the remainder are still languishing inside. There's 65 under five years old. So they are not a dangerous to anyone. As I know, they are dangerous while, while crying, but that doesn't count. When you're like a crying kid, doesn't count as dangerous to, to have lack of access to health. So, so even for even for someone who wants to throw up their hands and say a pox on both their houses, every side in Syria's armed conflict is awful, you can at least be on the side of these sick uh, sick people and sick kids and say that helping them won't be somehow contributing to a, a bad political outcome, right? And and, and and use their people can use their, their those who have political capital can use it to pressure the United Nations, the World Health Organization. Uh, and their and their diplomats in Damascus to, to push for what is after all international law, right? I mean, isn't yeah. isn't it international law that Syria theoretically agrees to that there is free movement of medicine and of sick people even in in besieged zones? But it's not the first time that medical health is startling. It's risky. He targets hospitals. He targets health workers. And now he is preventing health access. It's a torture mechanism outside of jail. He, he tortured you in jail. Outside of the jail, as a parent, he tortured you with your kid. And you will feel that you are willing to do anything, accept anything, if anyone gives you a solution for that kid. And even when you reach that point, no one tells you what you can accept. How, if, if, okay, what, what is the options? I'm right now, I speak a really good English, I have a really good connection with journalists and activists around the world. And I reached the point with Muayyad's case of, what can I do? Imagine a family that doesn't have access to internet, that lives under bombardment, and with a sick kid with brain cancer. So they don't know what is next now. They are waiting, and they don't know what they are waiting for. And small details. I wanted to buy him like a, a toy. And I sent one of my friends to look around what toys are, are available. And I'm a bit picky. I don't want a gender stereotype toys. I don't want armed guns, plastic guns, because it's violent. And okay, but I can't buy him a bicycle because his movement is going to be affected in the next two to three months. So I don't want to buy him something that's going to be sad story in two months. So no scooter, no bicycle. I ended up with a like small car that costed $50, which is and plastic. You're, and you're having it bought inside Wuta. Yeah, yeah, of course. Clear. You're not yeah. buying it here and I sending can't, it because there's no way to do that. I can't send them anything from outside. So this toy that has usually cost $2 from any $1 store, you can buy something like it. It cost me $50 dollars to, to 
and I kept hearing people buy him food, buy him something useful, you know, and your parents always in Christmas buy you something useful and you hate it. I told him, no, 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 I'm not gonna buy him something useful. I used to be a kid. I still remember when I was a kid, I didn't want something useful. I wanted to play. Marcel, uh, thanks uh, for taking all this time to speak to us. Uh, uh, you've set up a website that uh, people can go to to learn more about the stories of people inside Ruta. A group of like kind of 50 volunteers work on this website. It's called goldruta.com. That's G-H-O-U-T-A dot com. Yes. And we, we are trying to translate now the basic information into seven languages. All of the website and data and it is voluntarily collected and translated and designed. And it's basically to explain what living under siege means. And because to help our allies, and I still believe in humanity, I'm a big, big believer that we have allies outside and they are facing their own battle with Islamophobia, racism, and many, many aspects of this problem. So if they want to support, they will find it easily to find data, to print things, to do sessions, to have meetings with officials in their own countries. Uh, in this website, specifically, we are asking people to pressure UN and WHO and their embassies and their parliament members into doing something to break the siege of Utah. We need three things, basically. Aid convoys to enter immediately having a passage that is open and safe access to help. Well, uh, Marcel, thanks again. And uh, listeners who uh, were, were moved or interested in what they heard from Marcel can go to wuta.com. That's, again, G-H-O-U-T-A.com to learn more about the siege and, and ways they can uh, uh, affect it. Uh, thanks uh, for speaking with us. Thank you for giving the opportunity. This is Thanasi Kambanis in Beirut with James Sadri, the executive director of the Syria campaign. Hi, Thanasi. Welcome, James. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, we're going to talk today about where, where we've gotten with Syria and what organizations like James's have uh, left to do at this uh, sad stage of the conflict. Um, let's start off just very quickly by introducing our listeners to what the Syria campaign is and, and uh, what, what, your role, uh, what role you are trying to play. Yeah, sure. So we started uh, a little under four years ago uh, with a mission to elevate the voices of Syria's kind of nonviolent civil society and do everything we could to try and galvanize the world around this, this mission of, of supporting a Syria that's peaceful and, and democratic. So we're a bunch of, of campaigners and NGO workers who come from a whole range of different backgrounds. My personal background is, is from Greenpeace and the BBC, but we've got colleagues from kind of Oxfam and Avaz and different groups. And we've all got a different personal attachment to Syria. I first went to Syria 20 years ago after finishing high school and, you know, went back a whole bunch of times and, you know, fell deeply in love with the place. So when, you know, when the conflict kicked off uh, or when the uprising rather happened, uh, a lot of us were dotted around the world doing different things. Um, but a couple of years in, three years in rather, uh, we felt like we wanted to bring those skills to try and elevate the Syria that we didn't feel was getting enough attention. You know, people were, were focusing, obviously, 
a bit on the Assad regime, but much more increasingly on the extremist groups, um, you know, the Al-Qaeda type groups and eventually ISIS. And nobody was really shining a spotlight on the Syrians in the middle, who are the vast majority of Syrians who, you know, we often call civil society. So that's, you know, when you say we bring our PR and professional skills, you know, we just wanted to do anything we could to, to elevate those folks. So for a lot of the years of the conflict, your goal has been to focus attention on crimes against civilians and also on the appealing revolutionary aspirations of, of sort of freedom-loving, middle-of-the-road Syrians. It would seem like that narrative didn't prevail, right? So, so you're, to the extent that your, your struggle was to pass this narrative into, let's say, the Western public's consciousness, that there are a whole bunch of Syrians who are neither ISIS nor Assad, uh, who, who, who want a better life and aren't extremists or fascists, uh, and to a second uh, level that, that the biggest victims here have been civilians who have been uh, barrel-bombed and otherwise murdered by the regime. How mm. come that's not the narrative that people think of when they well, think of Syria? Well, I don't... Hmm, I mean, it's a big... Or maybe you, maybe, I'm, maybe you dispute the premise. Well, if you're saying how come the narrative in the West, largely, isn't that there's a, there's a Syrian pro-democracy force out there. Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, that the, hasn't prevailed? Right. I mean, the, the, the narrative which I struggle against uh, is that everyone in Syria, the, 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 the only choice is either Bashar al-Assad or ISIS and that there's nothing in the middle. Yeah. Well, you know, I think a large part of that is because the ISIS stuff has eclipsed everything else and, and people are quite happy to see strong men, dictators, authoritarians controlling faraway countries. And they don't feel that deep solidarity with others struggling for the same rights that they are, you know, frankly, at home as well. What do you learn from the, uh, from the story of the White Helmets? I've, I've encountered this a little bit directly myself, that anytime they're in the public eye, there's this sudden onslaught uh, on Twitter and elsewhere of accusations that the, that the White Helmets are really a front for al-Qaeda or that they are a... Uh, an operation set up by the CIA, um, and that either way, um, you know, the, the allegations are either that, that the rescues they do are faked, or even if they are rescuing people, it doesn't matter because somehow they are, they're a PSYOP, an anti-Assad regime PSYOP. Yeah, I think there's a, there, there's a, frankly, there's a massive disinformation effort, not just against the White Helmets, but, you know, clearly on the Syria conflict in general. We're really aware of that in the Western media around, let's say, the US election. Everyone's like, oh, there's a whole bunch of uh, disinformation efforts here around Brexit in Europe. But nobody's really digging into that on Syria. Um, and we've got a forthcoming report on this. And I sincerely hope that journalists and other interested folks start digging into it and go, how is this narrative on this key conflict of our generation being skewed by you know, these state-backed efforts, because there's a lot going on there. You know, what's interesting on the White Helmets is they've had tens of thousands of articles in traditional media, mainstream media, credible media, whatever you want to call it, about them, and none of them has ever substantiated any of these ridiculous claims against them. And yet, online, on social media, where obviously there aren't any of those journalistic principles, all these smears are flying around at an extremely kind of high level. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's deeply worrying. What is still on the agenda? Uh, I mean, given where the war in Syria is today and the, and the sort of sense that it's in a final phase, uh, the, the conflict against ISIS is, is more or less done, the anti-regime uh, rebels only, re only remain in Idlib province and in Ghouta and maybe a couple of other tiny pockets around the country. And so the, 
the sort of sense that I that I hear is that the you know if the war is not over, certainly the stage of the war when it was contested is over. So even if it continues now, it will be sort of a simmering insurgency. Um, I don't know if you agree with that assessment, but in any case, what you know what are what are the action targets for mm. for for the Syria campaign uh, at this stage? Our focus has never really been the war in terms of thinking that that can deliver any anything positive. You know, any end to the violence that's going on will be a positive thing, but that certainly shouldn't mean an end to the struggle for the rights that Syrians rose up for back in 2011. And it's definitely my sincere hope that that, you know, can continue and, and we need to find a way to support that internationally. The, the problem is if the war or when the war, uh, the conflict stops above the ground, what will be a lot less visible to people is what's happening underground, largely in these dungeons where tens of thousands, if not more, uh, people are being detained, disappeared, routinely tortured every day. You know, that's the story of, of more than four decades of Assad regime control. But that is, that is the primary vehicle by which, you know, the entire country and society gets suppressed because everybody has a relative in detention that prohibits them from kind of speaking out. And that would be the ultimate failure, I think, of the international system if we let Syria fall back into that setup. I mean, I, I, would, I would take exception to describing it as falling back because it's that that gulag and that mass de de detention and torture uh, parastate has continued on yeah, the whole time. Yeah, absolutely. But I think we have to recognize that there were glimmers, you know, post-March 2011, where whole swathes of the Syrian population experienced something different and for the first time experienced what it would be like to come together collectively and, and aspire and dream for, bless you, for, for a, um, a different kind of future, for a positive future, one that they control. Obviously, those gulags and that detention and that torture continued, but there were, there were pockets outside of government control where people could dream of something different. A lot of your work has targeted, let's say, public opinion or governments in the West, you know, trying to urge them to action, to care about uh, the conditions mm. of civilians, rule of law, etc. Uh, what do you see these publics and these states doing today as they get the message that, that Russia and Assad and Iran have won um, and that Damascus is eager to, to do business, whether on uh, extra legal uh, uh, detentions of alleged yeah. terrorists or on uh, business of reconstruction or, yeah. or you know. Yeah, I've, well, I think that, you know, there's, there's different levels uh, at which publics, if we're talking about international publics, can act. There's kind of direct support, and that's been really successful in terms of giving money to groups like the White Helmets. We've helped raise millions of dollars for those folks directly. The international political pressure that you're talking about, yeah, has been, frankly, a lot less successful. The international community has done pretty much nothing to stop the targeting and killing of civilians in the last few years. But what can we do now? I think what we can do now is not normalize the, you know, the Assad regime and, and say, okay, well, just because the war's stopping, that therefore we can start pumping a whole bunch of reconstruction money to this guy who's repeatedly used chemical weapons against his own people, who's torturing and, and disappearing tens of thousands. So that's got to be a really, really clear message to the international community. And I would really challenge on a fundamental level this idea that because the conflict's over, that means that that no pressure can be brought onto Assad because that's assuming that the only pressure is military pressure on the ground. Whereas we know he's, he's presiding over an incredibly weak state that depends on Iran, it depends on Russia, and they're totally plugged into the international system. And they're much weaker actors than we think they are. So, 
you know, I, this comes back to the international game, really. And what is, what is the international community prepared to do to stand up for human rights and democracy? You know, we also shouldn't jump stages uh, to assume that the Syrian conflict can end without it going through a core negotiated phase, whether that's in Geneva or elsewhere, I think is a big, big assumption like that. Um, you know, I'm no military analyst, but there's a lot that needs to happen before uh, the Syrian regime has complete control of the country. And I think in those processes, wherever they exist, that's where uh, we need to bring more international pressure to say, look, you know, there needs to be some sort of credible way to create space within Syrian society, either to help envisage a future post-Assad, however that happens, and not just kind of wash our hands of it and go, oh, well, you know, he's back for another 40 years along with his kids or whatever. What have you learned from, uh, or, 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 or what are you trying to learn from, um, from this sad history of the last six years, in, in, in particular from the you know, collective failure to do anything to protect you know, norms against the use of chemical weapons, norms against uh, the mass uh, torture and murder of civilians, and uh, uh, the, you know, the sort of, you know, beyond the politics, mm. just the, the, the sort of sheer indifference of so, in so many quarters to, to the crimes against Syrian people. I mean, it's a, it, it's a real signal uh, event that, you know, barrel, I mean, the chemical weapons were, were, were uh, the sort of sharpest uh, edge that got attention, but the, but the barrel bombs killed so many more people, um, you know, cheap, cheap, easy to use, easy to deploy, completely criminal, um, and utterly and indiscriminate. Utterly, I mean, yes, a criminal because utterly indiscriminate, yeah. and and that barely barely registered a blip either either in public opinion or in in the sort of circles of where you know places where we expect uh, uh, outrage to to translate into policy. I mean, I've I've personally been so surprised and obviously quite depressed that for the last more than three years we've been doing everything we can to to show what's happening on the barrel bomb front and also with the work of the White Hammers day in, day out. I mean, this is happening dozens of times a day. Was it over? Because, you know, for, for, to, read the, to read coverage, the, one would think barrel bombing ended a few years ago. No, I mean, obviously, I mean, it's, it's just been happening continuously and still continues. But I, what I've been surprised about is I think when everybody a few years back was clamoring about these barrel bombs and continued to say these are being rolled out of helicopters, these rusty improvised devices and, you know, fall down, tumble down on, on neighborhoods, that, that someone would do something about it and they're just being, you know, thrown out of helicopters. This isn't sophisticated weaponry. And yet for the world to do nothing and us, well, not us, but our partners to be documenting this stuff in thousands, tens of thousands of hours of YouTube footage. I mean, it's all there. People can see it. This isn't something that's happening, you know, behind closed doors or in the shadows. That's what's really shocking about it. And I think there's big conversations around, we live in a world of proliferation of information, but where's the signal within the noise? And how does our, our kind of digital world actually, maybe it prevents us from being able to get that clarity. Um, maybe it's to do with what's happening to the media world around us, but there is a profound failure that we haven't been able to stop this relatively easy daily aerial war on Syrian civilians when, let's remember, four out of five UN Security Council permanent members have been flying in Syrian airspace bombing ISIS, and yet they've been doing nothing to, to deal with these, you know, almost daily attacks on civilians. Historically speaking, this has maybe been the best documented uh, uh, war ever. Yeah, we've never had more documented evidence of mass human rights violations and, and war crimes 
committed in human history. I mean, part of that's just to do with the nature of the digital information revolution. But, you know, the question is, what do we do with that if, if politicians aren't prepared to act? And I think, obviously, a large amount of this is to do with the absence of US leadership um, in the Obama administration post the Iraq war and the trauma of involvement in the Middle East. We're, we're stuck in a Western narrative battle. This is much less to do with Syria than it's to do with the West and how it perceives its ability to, to protect civilians, to project its values. And that took a massive, massive hit, uh, frankly, under the Obama administration. And I think we're, you know, we're, we're paying the price for that in, in Syria as humanity. Well, James Sadri, thank, thanks a lot for your time and, uh, and for the work you do thank at, you very at, much. at Syria Campaign to connect uh, what people are trying to do inside Syria with, uh, with the world uh, we live in out here and outside of Syria's borders. Uh, thanks a lot. Thanks again, Thanasi. PCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about Century's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.